So I'm going to ask for God's help as we do that together now. So let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the great God of grace, and we ask for your grace tonight. There are many things happening in our world and in our lives that are a cause for distraction and for worry. Uh, Help us to entrust all of these things into your sovereign and good hands. And please give us the focus we need to be shaped and changed by your word now. Uh, Use me in my frailty, in my weakness, uh, to preach your word as I should. And may the mighty power of your spirit be at work in all of us now as we hear uh, that saving message of Christ crucified. In his name we pray this. Amen. Um, I want you to imagine for a moment that you have a particular wound on your leg that's not healing, starting even to get a little bit festy. All the various drugs and the topical ointments you've tried have proven useless. And seeing you at your wit's end, your doctor tells you there's one more option. Uh, It's an option that's been used at various points in history and has recently been proven to be very effective for your condition. Uh, There's just one thing you need to know, says the doctor. Uh, This medical treatment involves the use of maggots to consume the dead flesh and help clean your wound. Would you go for this kind of off-putting healing, salvation, or would you keep kind of battling away with the ointments, with the topical creams, waiting for a less humiliating and gross option? Could you get past the yuck factor, I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, Maggot therapy which was used to heal and even save life uh, during the American Civil War and World War I, has apparently made a bit of a comeback in the world of medicine. Uh, But as one article on this topic noted, the big barrier that advocates of this treatment face is simply the emotional gravity of pure human revulsion. You see, the saving remedies there, it's just that it carries with it for so many people a huge yuck factor, and many who could benefit from it turn it down. Uh, In our passage tonight, we read of a much greater salvation that likewise carries with it a huge yuck factor in the eyes of many. Or to use Paul's words in this passage, a huge foolishness factor. Uh, Paul speaks of the message at the heart of the Christian faith, the message of Christ crucified, the Son of God rejected, shamed, killed on a cross in order to bring forgiveness of sins through faith in his name. Uh, Talk of the cross has been uh, viewed by many throughout history as illogical, barbaric and unbecoming for one you would worship as God. So you can imagine how this kind of outside perception, which was real in the ancient world particularly, would have put pressure on some in the Corinthian church to change their tune a little bit on their central message. You know, why focus so much on a message that kind of appalls so many when you could focus on other things that more appeal? Things of wisdom or knowledge and other Greek virtues that can perhaps work well with Christianity. You see, we might be able to think that a bit too, right? 
Why focus on the message of the cross, the talk of Jesus' bloody sacrifice and the need for forgiveness when that message just often offends, even kind of confounds people? Why not place our focus on other things that we uphold as Christians and also appeal more strongly to the world around us? Things like social justice or running really good youth programs. See, in response to this way of thinking, Paul says, don't you hold back from the word of the cross. Leave what is central to our faith central. Uh, It might be called foolish by many. Uh, It might carry that yuck factor, but it carries God's power to save. So you keep believing it and you keep proclaiming it as the truth which is central to your lives, to our church. Now, the way I've broken up this text is to look first at Paul's main argument that this so-called foolish message of the cross is actually God's power to save. And then I want to look at the two kind of pieces of evidence Paul gives to convince uh, his readers of this powerful message. First is the weak people that it saved, and then the weak preacher uh, that God used. So first, this foolish message of the cross is God's power to save. It's through this message of the cross that people are saved from God's judgment on their sin and brought into a saving knowledge of the true God. See, look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Uh, Ever since the earliest days of the church, Christians have had to grapple with this awkward tension On the one hand, we kind of rejoice over the saving truth that God has forgiven our sins, our heart rebellion against him by the means of his Messiah's death on a cross on our behalf. We hold that in one hand, but on the other hand, we feel the kind of judgment, the ridicule of others who see that very same message as foolishness. You follow a humiliated and crucified saviour? That's weird. Uh, There's an ancient piece of graffiti from uh, the 2nd or 3rd century, they're not sure, that provides a kind of window into how the earliest Christians were viewed by their neighbours. You see that man, little guy there, worshipping a man with a donkey's head on a cross, and the ancient Greek words, when translated, read, Alexander worships his god. Now, can you imagine being this ancient Christian Alexander? There you are, just walking back from the local market, and you see this etched on the wall for all to see. The whole neighborhood is getting told, your worship of a crucified saviour is as foolish as worshipping a crucified donkey. Now, maybe you can kind of imagine that mockery because you've felt it from your own neighbours or work colleagues or friends. Or maybe you've felt it from the kind of influential public figures that we see on TV, read in books, who are very prepared to tell us what they really think about the message of the cross that we hold so dear. Uh, In his book, The God Delusion, the famous evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins says this about the message of the cross. I've described the atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad, for its, uh, but for its ubiquitous familiarity, which has dulled our objectivity. 
A lot of big words there by that smart man. Uh, The prevailing wisdom of many of the elites in many cultures throughout many periods of history has been that the message of the cross is barking mad. But notice that God doesn't play by the rules of the world's prevailing wisdom. In fact, he kind of, in fact, it's like he takes all the proud assumptions that lead to people dismissing the cross and then kind of turns them on their head. See, look at what he says in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Now these verses, which include a quote from Isaiah 29, they're not saying that God is against wisdom or logic or science. In fact, Paul often appeals to logic in many of his theological arguments. You'll notice that as you read the New Testament. And actually, God has an entire genre in the Bible referred to as the wisdom literature, where he highlights the blessing of wisdom. God's not against wisdom, generally, but the wisdom that God is turning on its head here applies to the subject of God. It's the wrong assumptions humanity makes of God when it comes to knowing him and being accepted by him. Uh, We're kind of used to simply going along with what the experts tell us in life. And much of the time this is helpful. But notice when it comes to God, the world's so-called experts on religion, philosophy, they're the very ones who get it wrong. See, the message of the cross turns the wisdom of the wise, says the teacher of the law, the debater of the age, on its head. Uh, People aren't coming to a saving knowledge of God through their so-called wisdom, but through this foolish message of the cross brought by God. Verse 21. For uh, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, why was the message of the cross just so difficult for both the Jewish and Gentile people of Paul's day? Well, in terms of the Jews, they were simply appalled by the idea that their promised Messiah would be crucified by their Roman oppressors. See, in their minds, their Messiah was supposed to be doing the crushing, not being crushed. And so the Jews would look for signs indicating the arrival of this political saviour they were waiting for. And although Jesus actually did many signs for them, we see that in the Gospels, They kind of repeatedly had no eyes to see it because he just simply wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. They wanted salvation from Rome, not sin. Thus, a crucified Messiah was simply just unthinkable. And in terms of the Gentiles, well, they just couldn't cope with the cross because of just how pathetic it all was. See, in the Greco-Roman world, Uh, They valued traits such as wisdom, power, style, things that kind of make you look impressive to other people. 
things that win respect. They wanted to follow in the footsteps of the great Greek thinkers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And so the idea of following in the footsteps of a crucified saviour, particularly in comparison with those other men, just would have been crazy. You see, it's sort of hard for us to contemplate just how much horror and shame this ancient form of execution conjured up in the minds of so many of the ancients. Because in many ways, we've kind of become used to the idea of the cross. Uh, But the cross was such a shameful form of death that it was actually forbidden as a form of capital punishment among Roman citizens. It was so distasteful that Cicero speaks of crucifixion as something that should be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, their ears. You see, the cross was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Uh, It's an awkward and at times uncomfortable reality that some of the people we do life with will view our commitment to Jesus and the gospel as foolishness. Uh, I remember feeling this when I... I told the eye doctors that I worked for in my former profession as an orthoptist, uh, when I told them that I was leaving to do a traineeship at my local church uh, to teach people about Jesus. I remember one doctor just looked totally shocked and clearly thought it was a waste of time. I remember another doctor, the most senior and respected doctor, when he heard about it, he actually went out and bought me a copy of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. It was kind of like he was saying, if kind of philosophy, theology is what you're interested in, well, here's real wisdom, ancient Roman style. I actually kind of left work that day kind of aware that most of these doctors who I loved and respected kind of looked at me as a naive 23-year-old guy who had just bought into foolishness. See, what do you do when you're in a moment like that? Well, Paul says you remember the great power and wisdom of that foolishness. Look at verse 24. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness stronger than human strength. The cross is the wisdom and the power of God. It's the wisdom of God because it's the fullest revelation of God. The cross speaks of God's remarkable love for sinners that he would send his own son to die for them. The cross speaks of the seriousness of our sin, deserving of death and God's commitment to bring justice on it. The cross speaks of God's sovereignty as we see him using the most vile act in history, the murder of the Son of God, as part of his glorious plan to save us. See, if you want to truly know God, As the infinitely loving, just, and sovereign God, don't go looking for it in Marcus Aurelius' words or in any other philosopher. Go and find it in the message of the cross. That's where you will find the wisdom of God himself in the fullest way. 
And you see, the cross is also the power of God because it is effective to save sinners. You see, to say Jesus died for me, like so many of us do as Christians, is actually to say Jesus, the Christ, died for me. See, Paul says we preach Christ crucified. It wasn't just some holy man who was hung on that cross as a sacrifice for us. It was the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Only he was the perfect, sinless God-man who had the power and authority to take upon himself our sin and atone for those sins as we trust him. B.B. Warfield sums it up like this. I like this quote. A Christless cross, no refuge for me. A crossless Christ, my saviour may not be. But, O Christ crucified, I rest in thee. You see, we rest in the message of Christ crucified because it's the only thing that removes the penalty of our sin. We aren't made right by God through our achievements, through our law-keeping, through our intellect or our success. It's only by the death of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who dies in our place for our sin that we have life. See, these verses show us that the foolishness of the... They show us the foolishness of the world's wisdom and the wisdom of God's foolishness. And now maybe we don't completely ignore the message of the cross in our lives, but maybe we do find other messages to focus our attention on, uh, messages that align more easily with the wisdom and the priorities of the world, messages that more easily uh, appeal rather than appall. See, what might that actually look for us like for us? Maybe it's a Christianity that focuses primarily on social issues, not grounded in the gospel. Maybe it's a Christianity that focuses on self-improvement and being moral, 10 steps to a more enriched life. Maybe it's a Christianity that focuses on social reform- uh, reformation and the return of conservative principles. Maybe it's a Christianity that focuses on the demonstration of supernatural spiritual gifts. Now, these aren't necessarily bad things. Many of them are good things. But they are not the message that beats the heart of Christianity. That belongs to the cross. Jesus crucified for us. And so that's where we need to ground our central focus. A faith which rests short of the cross, says Spurgeon, is a faith which will lead you short of heaven. The cross is central. Uh, So Paul has just made the point that the message of Christ crucified, though foolish in the eyes of many, is in fact God's power to save. But Paul now brings two pieces of evidence to prove to the Corinthians just how powerful that message of the cross truly is. He first shows them the weak people God saves and then the weak preacher God uses. So first, let's look at that first piece of evidence, the weak people God saved. Uh, Their frailty, the frailty of the Corinthians, their low status, their average lives, that showed that their salvation had nothing to do with them and everything to do with God and his powerful message of the cross. Uh, There is an expression that's sometimes wrongly attributed to the Bible, which says God helps those who help themselves. Uh, It's this idea that God kind of favours or even rewards uh, and helps the capable the productive, the successful. 
But the flip side of that saying is, of course, that God doesn't help those who can't help themselves. He ignores the weak, the foolish, and the unimpressive. But you see, who are the real winners in this worldview? Who gets to boast? Well, it's not God, is it, primarily? He's just dealing out the rewards, helping those who are already doing the hard work. It's actually the successful people who get to boast in their own achievements. But notice how the congregation of Corinth again turns that view on its head. It's not the impressive or the successful who had found God's help and salvation. It's the unimpressive, those who really have nothing to offer God. See, look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the eyes of foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Uh, I was given a book when I was a kid, uh, which was all about famous sports people who were also Christian. It contained their sporting achievements and their testimonies about how they came to Christ, and it was encouraging, but in many ways it was also a little reflective of our desire to make Christianity more appealing through the people who have actually succeeded in life. Look at that guy. He's a huge footy star, and he takes Jesus seriously. But it's interesting that God doesn't point to the successful Christians and say, kind of, be like them. He points to the average Joes and says, look at what I've done in them. It's not the nobles of this world who receive God's salvation in large numbers. It's the nobodies, Uh, the people, the wise of the world, kind of write off as fools. Uh, But notice how the foolish people of God match with the foolish message of the cross. Both God's message and God's people are turning the wisdom of the world upside down. It's not a message of power, might, and style that saves, but a message of humble, shameful service that does. It's not a people of power, might, and style who are called, but those who are weak, insignificant, and despised. Uh, God does this, says Paul, to show where the power really rests. It's not in people and their power, but in God and the message of his crucified king. So you look at verse 28. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. You see, when we all stand before God on that great day of judgment, No one is going to be able to stand before God and say, God, of course you should accept me. You should let me into heaven because I've been a good person. I've worked hard. I've achieved lots of good things. Now, on that last day, when we stand before God, God will look past those who have been trusting themselves and their own achievements and point to the six-year-old believer the intellectually disabled believer, the barely making ends meet believer, the believer with a kind of messy history, the average Joe believer, and he'll declare them to be the ones he accepts and welcomes in on the basis of the cross, not their credentials, 
You see, the brilliant, the famous, the strong, the celebrities who might be tempted to read out their resume of achievements before God, they will actually stand humbled in the face of these unimpressive people who, by God's grace, simply cling to the achievement of God on their behalf by means of his crucified Saviour. Verse 30, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, we run a Christianity Explored course through our church here. And one of the things I'll often do in this course is direct people to check out the Christianity Explored website. And you can do that yourself, actually. Uh, it has a whole host of helpful material on it. But there is a link on that website that takes people to a page called Real Life Stories. And there you can read all about how, or watch rather, how regular, unimpressive and broken, sinful people, people like the Corinthians, people like us, were drawn by the power of God to believe in the message of the cross. Uh, one lady, Deb, speaks of being a kind of former heroin addict who one day found a Gideon Bible in her drawer, or in a drawer, while looking for a lighter. She speaks of reading it while high and then feeling the weight of her sin, the fear of God, and the sudden need to go to church for more answers. Uh, the service she went to just happened to be a Good Friday service that thankfully was all focused on the cross. And even before the preacher got up, the Bible reading alone hit the target of her heart. She writes, They started reading from the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus' crucifixion, and I just sobbed because what I heard was that he had died from, on the cross for me, that all the things I had done and the punishment that was coming my way, he had taken on the cross. And when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I realized that it was actually for me he was forsaken. He had taken my forsakenness. And I just sobbed. I burst into tears. He'd done that for me so that I could not be forsaken. And I just knew that I was God's daughter. I was sobbing, absolutely sobbing. I didn't know what people thought and I didn't really care because I walked out, there, walked out of there knowing that God is my father and life had just changed from that moment on. You see, outwardly, Deb's life would have looked pretty messy and pretty unimpressive. By her own admission, she had done things she knew were wrong in God's eyes. But God, in his great power, saved her. See, think about it. God led her to that Bible. God brought a conviction of sin to her heart. God led her to church. God had his message of the cross from Matthew's gospel save her. It was all of God, and it always is. You see, like Deb, people who uh, hear and believe in the crucified and risen Savior are changed from that moment on. Paul says that as they find Christ, they also find righteousness, the, their sin given to Jesus, his perfect righteousness, uh, his perfect and righteous life credited to them. They find sanctification, made holy in God's eyes, set apart to be his special possession, or God's daughter, as Deb says. They find redemption. 
they have new life in Jesus, being freed from the slavery to sin and death. Uh, Maybe you're not a Christian here tonight, and maybe like Deb, you feel like your life is a mess and you have nothing really to offer God. Well, the good news is that God doesn't need anything from you. You simply need to trust in his foolish message, so-called foolish message of the cross, and you will find forgiveness and life. But maybe you're here tonight and you do actually think you have some credentials to your name. Maybe you do feel like there are a few achievements under the belt uh, that, you know, may well actually impress God. Well, let me encourage you to be humble and actually cling to the achievement of Jesus at the cross alone for your acceptance by God. See, it is still possible for the successful and the powerful to find salvation if they receive the message of the cross humbly, like all are called to do. Um, The Countess of Huntington was a wealthy and powerful Englishwoman in the 18th century. Uh, She was also a wonderfully committed Christian. Uh, She wrote of Paul's words here and spoke about God's grace to her, even though she was one of those nobles uh, that he speaks of. And she says, thinking about verse 26, Blessed be God, it does not say any mighty or any noble. It says many mighty, many noble. I owe my salvation to the letter M. You see, while many nobodies find a place in God's kingdom, God does still leave the door open to the noble who is willing to trust in the cross rather than their credentials. But finally, the the second piece of evidence that Paul uses to demonstrate God's power to save through the cross is actually his own weakness. It was the message, not the man, which had powerfully saved the Corinthians. See, look at what Paul says in verse chapter 2 there. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Now, this kind of shocks us. The great apostle Paul, possibly the greatest missionary ever to have lived, tells us how much he was freaking out as he came into Corinth. And we know he really was scared because in the book of Acts, it tells us Jesus actually had to come to him in a night vision while in Corinth and calm him down. Don't be afraid, uh, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, said Jesus. Uh, Paul says he was scared, not self-confident as he preached to the Corinthians. He didn't have all the perfect illustrations, he didn't have all the little one-liners, but in his fear and weakness he decided to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't know or mention other related things, it just means that Paul made the main thing the main thing. That foolish message of the cross. He didn't dress it up or attempt to make it more palatable for his audience, he simply preached it in all his weakness. And what was the result? Well, you actually see it again back in Acts 18, which says many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. See, how is it that Paul was able to somehow break all the rules of public speaking? How was he somehow able to win people over without the slick presentation, without the confident tone, without the persuasive arguments, without the emotionally moving examples, testimonies, illustrations? Well, because it wasn't the man winning people over, but the message 
The simple truth that says Jesus the Christ was crucified on your account to grant you forgiveness and life through faith in his name. It was the power of God's spirit as God's message was delivered. See, look at the final verses. My speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. See, most Christians are not gifted speakers and are often terrified about sharing their faith, talking about the cross. Most of us know that we often stumble over our words and we look visibly nervous when we're trying to explain things about Christianity. And because we know this about ourselves, we often assume our efforts would be somewhat fruitless. Uh, We even assume evangelism probably isn't our gift and we leave it to someone else who's more capable, more gifted, more articulate. We say, come along to church and hear that guy explain things or listen to the way this YouTube preacher puts it. But Paul's words here remind us of God's power to use weak people like us in the proclamation of Christ crucified. So long as you know that message, that's enough. God will work all things, uh, God will work through that. And it actually gives you the confidence at the office tomorrow or in your uni circles when people ask you what you did on the weekend. Instead of just passing over the fact that you went to church, you can actually say in all your trembling and weakness that you did go to church and that you heard about how Jesus died for your sin and rose again in order to give you life. See, salvation could come through a simple, stumbly conversation like that, all because God is powerful, not that you're articulate. In closing, the cross has been a symbol of Christianity since the early church, and it remains a symbol today. We see it on churches, hanging around people's necks, tattooed on the occasional arm. Uh, John Stott, one Christian writer, comments on the symbol of the cross. The fact that a cross became the Christian symbol and that Christians stubbornly refused in spite of the ridicule to disregard it in favour of something less offensive, can only have one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus himself, and it was out of loyalty to him that his followers clung so doggedly to this sign. You see, why does Jesus want us to keep the cross of his cross so central? Well, we've heard the answer in this passage tonight. It is this foolish message, so-called, that God actually demonstrates his power to save. It's the cross that saves weak people like us. It's the cross that bears fruit despite the weak preacher. Praise God for Christ crucified. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your powerful word of the cross that we've heard tonight. Uh, Help us not to be ashamed or embarrassed by that word. Help us to see it as true wisdom and true power. Uh, May we cling to that message, Lord, and may uh, may we trust you as we share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.